the council on the future of education. Welcome to the next episode of the Consul on the Future of Education. I'm here with my dear friend and fellow founder, Mr. Keith Reeves. How you doing, Keith? I'm doing well, Rob. How are you? Ah, fantabulous. Uh, okay, so here's my question. We talked a lot about the Council of Ten and how public education was created. And we talked about it having been created by uh, the models that they had at the time, which would have been the church, the jail, and the factory. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I was, I was thinking about that a little bit because, um, you know, we don't really have factories anymore, obviously. Uh, we don't have um, jail cells like they did back then. I certainly don't think anybody wants to model themselves off our current jail system. Certainly not. And, uh, but we still have the church, and, and it hasn't changed in over you know several thousands of years, so I'm not sure that's a model for the future either. So I want to read this to you, and I want to see if you feel that what I'm about to read would, would be a positive, educationally, culturally cool perspective on what public education could look like, okay? Mm-hmm. Schools would have virtually invisible hierarchy and students who would wear no uniforms and no signatures. There is a unique work environment that creates attractions, motivations, and retains the best students in the area. Schools encourage their students to take risks and to be innovative. The culture that they are creating is reflected in their decision-making as well. So far, so good? So far, so good. So far, so good. I, I thought so, too. Um, how, how do they do? How do they take these risk-taking and this innovation? Um, that They're allowed to make a mistake, even if it causes a lot of money. They, they're allowed to uh, act fast and, and, and deal with nat- the natural consequences. They learn from those consequences, and then they move on to make, obviously, less errors, but then creating a more innovative approach to learning. Sound pretty good so far? So far, so good. I mean, we're talking about the sort of stuff I write about, so yeah. <laughs> really. Um, so, so, so how about hiring teachers? They want to hire the smartest people. It's possible that they could attract some big egos, but they want to realize that the strength of their of their idea is coming from small, from a small community. And they're looking for that small community value that emphasizes risk-taking, agility, and cooperation. So the hiring process has to be very, very serious. It has to be extremely competitive. Because well, that's you- true. And something you raised that's critical, I don't necessarily think it's about what's, who's the smartest person, right? Because the attributes no. that you just described are about neuroplasticity. They're about flexibility. They're about innovation. They're about creative right brain thinking. And right. so frequently I hear people, I had a conversation the other day with a guy coming out of industry saying, I'm thinking about becoming a teacher. And I said, why? He said, well, yeah, you know, I've got 1600 or whatever on my SATs back in the day. And, you know, I've got a couple of degrees and I'm a very bright person and my IQ is quite high and I'm an expert in my content field. So I figure I'm a natural candidate. I said, you haven't given me one reason yet to think you'd be yeah. a teacher. So far None you've of, given me zero. That's right. Pedagogues Absolutely. are not, it's not just about IQ. 
so smart, I'm not sure is exactly the right descriptor, but yes, it should be fiercely competitive amongst those who right. do have the correct attributes. Right. And, and, and I think the idea of, of them being a, a good fit for yes, their precisely. Is, is probably the most important. Yeah, for the profession them, and for their community. Yes, because we want them to share those same values, to want to be at that same high level that hopefully the rest of the school would work. Okay, so so he, my point being that what I just read, I think, would be a really good place to start creating a model for the new public education. Mm-hmm. What I was reading was, a, was from an article called The Organizational Culture of Google. Mm-hmm. So this was Google's organizational model that I was right. reading. But yet it sounds so much like what a great school could be. And I think I th- Jamie Cassap would agree with you, the, the um, main education evangelist at Google, who speaks about that all the time. I absolutely right. So, so beyond Google, which to me seemed like the most obvious one to, to, to aim for, sure. Keith, can you come up with any other – cultural models out there in the 21st century that schools can start to use to say if we were going to be if we were going to recreate the committee of 10 what would be our models beyond just a, a google model you know it's a good question and it's something that i've struggled with a lot and as i write about in in my work it you know i, I am as an avowed uh, individual who doesn't believe necessarily in the power of institution i don't think that I could name an institution that I would want to model schools after, because I think that the 21st century school should be a new innovative model that others model themselves after. Now, I can't point to any extant circumstances in which there is such a case, but the values that you described when you listed those things, and we have words for them, and there are people who are going to bristle for a second, but that's tough. They are anti-fascist, they are anti-patriarchal, they are anti-hierarchical, And they're often anti-capitalist because they're not hell-bent on having a successful product every time because of the failure element that you talked about. Those decentralized, genuinely free attributes really are anti-institutional attributes, which is why I think that an organization like Google might be the only one that you could point to, maybe some think tanks within a group like Tesla. But when they do things that say, you have free time and latitude to make mistakes and blow things up and create things and destroy things and do relatively transgressive anti-institutional things with no profit motive, that falls outside of the scope of the vast majority of capitalist and business enterprises that exist, not only in America, but worldwide. So I think all of the values you list, particularly being anti-patriarchal and anti-hierarchical, are critical for the future school. But I'm not sure many other organizations are big enough and strong enough to survive in the marketplace like Google is without having the amount of capital that they do. With that being said, that doesn't mean a school can't do it because God forbid, you know, we are not a, we're not putting out a product of making money. Well, that's precisely, uh, that's exactly right. I mean, I could not set it, have said it better myself, but that, and, and that's the aim of the section. You, you actually probably could have, because I stumbled over the words. <laughs> so you probably well, could have said it better. I was going to say, I, I was prolix about it in my book, but <laughs> after 600 pages, I guess I should have gotten my point across. But it's one of the reasons that I constantly talk about disengaging from the traditional local level, individualized democratic institution of the school board, where you have such local influence and there's politics and parents and attitudes. And, and also from uh, you know a, a staunchly uh, anti-profit perspective, because for-profit education has been shown so clearly not to work. So yes, the school has to be, I think we are 
uh, right where we need to be in saying that the schools must be that model institution that flies in its face. And it must be free of the influence of politics and money if it's going to do that. And and that to me is the, the pinnacle of where we are right now yeah. in terms of this crossroads, because it seems to be the politics and the capitalism that is keeping education in its 19th century state of affair that it is currently. Uh, because I think if we didn't have, uh, if, if, Education wasn't a political football right now, and there are big companies not making money off of the textbooks and everything else. We could make some some big changes in a positive manner. Well, that's right. Yeah, looking at the shame that we're stuck in this rut because of politics, and not only that, but the politicians aren't even educators. They're all just looking to figure out how they're going to get elected next or make line their pockets with money, which is so frustrating. Right. If we're going to be serious academics about it, which you and I are, we have to have the knowledge to understand that when these institutions, these traditional schools were built, say, during the Dewey era, there was an entirely different democracy. It wasn't just a different idea about democracy. But if we accept the the 2014 Princeton study to be true that showed that the American democracy has effectively transitioned into a corporatocratic oligarchy, and I believe that that is true, the centralization of wealth amongst a very few industrialists is evident the uh, nature of taxation, the nature of democracy, the nature of elected officials, the nature of public ethics, that's fundamentally different now than it was in 1938. We can't look at them and say they're the same. The, the era of John Dewey isn't the era in which we live. And it might have been perfectly acceptable for them socially to say at the time, we can trust our local elected officials to have the best interests of our kids at heart and give the educators the deference that they need to do what they need to do. But that politic doesn't exist anymore. Uh, which is why I propose consistently moving towards a political model like we have with, say, firefighting. We don't give people the right to hold the hose. You're not a professional firefighter. You don't know what you're doing. Just fund it and stay out of our way. Um, I think if we could shift towards something like that, we could clear the political hurdle. The capitalist hurdle is a tough one because nobody seems to want to fund education. They say, if I'm going to give you all that money, I want to have some say. Well, no, (laughs) you want to fund your fire department and give them the trucks and the hose that they say that they need to fund them with the staffing that they say that they need to make sure that they're able to do what they need to do. And then you get out of their way and you let them do the job. Now, I realize there's a pitfall there because we tried that with police departments and look what's happened. I mean, that's a huge problem. And I don't have all the answers because I'm not a government organizer. That's way outside of my (laughs) interest field. Um, but we really do need to disentangle ourselves from both the politics and the money if we're going to get this thing done. And, and you and I have been talking about this same, these same battles uh, that we want to start because it's, it's a continual uh, process of trying to figure out how do we even begin to make these major shifts in education. And um, when I was looking at that Google model, I was reading it. I'm going, wow, that's really where we need to be. Um, But real briefly, Keith, I I think there are some things in your school in particular that that really model some of that stuff, um, the innovative side of Google. Would you be able to give me a minute comparison of some of the things that you do at Discovery Elementary, right? Yeah, well, we're trying. Uh, Yeah, I mean, it sounds like you guys are really on par with trying to get some of this stuff going. 
Yeah, I mean, the fact that we can actually have a serious discussion about potentially actually implementing mastery-based progression, which is for lay people, the elimination of grade levels, it blows a lot of people's minds that we can even have those conversations. I think our standards-based assessment model, which is quite different from traditional standards-based grading, is a good example of that, where we're really trying to have more individualized conversations around genuine student achievement and get the deleterious and negative factors and particularly testing out of the way. The fact that we constantly facilitate collaboration amongst our staff, the fact that we do let our kids be pretty free range, as it were, to utilize the space that we've got, to not be compartmentalized, uh, to really get their individual modes met, to pay very close attention to how we speak to them in a pro-child nurturing way that doesn't involve the traditionally relatively fascistic approach that adults have had towards children. They are to be controlled and children must learn to obey. Those That sort of language is quite absent from our school culture. And a lot of those things, be free, go where you need to do, you know, use the resources you need, be in a comfortable environment. We're not going to judge you based on illicit and erroneous data. Those things do mirror in a lot of ways what's going on in a place like Google. Yes, and, and I could not agree more. And, and I would think that um, a statement that I would like to hear start to resonate in the public is, could we take a, a, a model like Google and start to infuse those ideas into education? And I would like to see uh, some other teachers out there, hopefully you that are listening right now, uh, to start looking at models like uh, Google, and I'm sure they're not the only one, um, that, that have this more open feel, this risk-taking opportunities, this uh, opportunities to let their students or IE employees in Google to uh, be more innovative, to have the opportunities that they do. Um, I would like to see some other educators out there to take a look at that and say, hmm, maybe there is something here that we could start modeling off uh, some of these other organizations. That's how we were created, folks. We were created based on the jail, the the church and the factory. Well, you know, if we want to, if we want to make major changes, there are groups out there that are doing some good things. Um, so why not look at some of those things as well, and then also become become our own entity? Um, it reminds me of a video I watched, and I'm not going to remember the name of it, but it was about City High School. I want to say that was out in California. Keith, you saw it with me. We were at Visti when we mm-hmm. saw that, um, and they very much made me think of what I would think Google would look like if you walked in the front door. You could pick where you wanted to go. Uh, you would be able to go into in other classes that, that, that have a, a higher interest for you. There was a lot of cool stuff going on. Can you remember that video? I do remember watching that with you, and you're right. It did have uh, quite a few of those attributes. Um, and I think I mentioned at the time, it also reminds me of Phoenix Coding Academy, which uh, Jamie Cassap has been a part of building, and that's a Google co-funded enterprise. Um, those places that are looking at breaking down those walls and utilizing innovative space design, um, Joplin High School in Missouri after the tornado swept through, the, the flexibility that they've afforded their students in an open and anti-hierarchical environment, um, it's a start. I mean, the physical design of your space can be a jumping off point. Um, I certainly use the innovative design here at Discovery, which was designed by VMDO out of Charlottesville, Virginia, to shift the pedagogy. It's, it's creating, I view buildings as educational technology, unsurprisingly, because I think everything is educational technology. <laughs> um, 
it's an opportunity to shift the pedagogy and to shift the school culture if you can redesign your spaces. Even in a, a hyper-traditional environment like Yorktown High School, where I used to teach, just creating one lab with beanbags and variable height chairs and variable height tables and a multiplicity of displays that were totally free on the network and accessible to kids, a lot of different writing resources, a lot of different physical manipulatables, just moving a class into that space changed the teaching. It might be incremental, but it can be a jumping off point to start to see, oh, what would it look like if we ramped this culture up to scale? And, and in all honesty, at this point, I, that's what I'm begging uh, teachers and or administrators to do is just take that one little risk on your yourself. You take that one little risk. Just try something innovative. Try something different. Try to create that one room that you can use like Keith is mentioning. Uh, for that matter, you know, teachers, if you don't always have the most supportive administration, close your door and do what you know you do best because at the end of the day, they're probably not going to open the door anyhow. So go get, <laughs> get in your classroom and teach the way innovative teachers could do it. And, and really, that's all we're asking is just to give it that first shot. So um, say we all. <laughs> that's right. So, so you know, go to a Google cultural organization article, read up about it a little bit, see if you can't take something and bring it into your classroom. You know, we all have to, we all have to try something in order to get it to move in the right direction. Uh, we're not going to have an overnight change of these things, but we can start changing them one classroom at a time. Uh, Keith, anything you want to say to wrap up? Yeah, the bottom line is do the right thing, not the easy thing, right? Like Rob said, take the chance. I had to, you know, I was in a second grade classroom recently providing some coverage for two classes simultaneously. It was was for a good reason, but still tough stuff. It was exhausting, no question (laughs) about it. But, you know, you got to do the right thing. Yes, it would have been easier for me to see, say, hey, you sit down and be quiet. But that's not the approach. I want to engage with that child. I want to use responsive classroom language. I want to engage in zones of regulation and do what we know is going to be a better thing for that kid. It's not easy, but if it's the right thing to do, you will find support from people like us, even if you don't have it in your own building. Absolutely. And if you need us, you can find us. Uh, the Council on the Future of Education has a website, edufuture.us. Uh, you can always find Keith and I all over pretty much every social media site, including, <laughs> including and especially Twitter. It's one of our favorites. Sure enough. Um, so you can find us anywhere. Also, subscribe to our podcast, and we're always um, having various conversations. If you want to join us in a conversation, please feel free to get a hold of me, Rob, at robferman.com. And uh, let me know your ideas and thoughts, and we'll have you on the show here with us as well. Um, so, to to wrap this up, well, could Google be could Google's organizational culture be a nice beginning a framework for what we could do in some things in education? That would be interesting to see, and I hope you guys take a look at that. Uh, this is Rob Furman and Keith Reeves signing off for the Council on the Future of Education.